0: You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. You all had a Merry Christmas. And let me just wish you in advance a Happy New Year. If you're gearing up for some revelry, be careful. Be careful. That's it? Just be careful. Before I start off, a word of warning Pastor Tim came up to me before, very concerned. He said, is your fly undone? And, and I, said, I said, no, it's just this really unique shirt that has a, a black strip down here that gives the illusion of perhaps, yeah. And I said, I said yeah, just a word of warning if before there's any distractions or shrieks of horror. Everything is secure. I said, I said to Pastor Tim, should I, should I maybe say something before I preach. And he said, yeah, you get a cheap laugh. And he was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so last Sunday for the, for the old year, 2019, and um, maybe you're expecting a, a sort of a warm and fuzzy arm around the shoulder, pat on the back type of message with lots of unicorns and rainbows and kittens and moonbeams, let me apologise in advance, okay, because it's not going to be that, it's a Susie cheerleader talk to pump you up for the new year. Is that all right? Happy with that? Okay, I just want to take a pretty familiar passage from the Christmas story and just go somewhere a bit different with it. We've just come through Christmas and the Advent season and it's important that we celebrate times like that and maybe reflect upon the time of year because there's different times of year that makes us think about God in different ways. Christmas is God's annual stubborn reminder that he hasn't given up on the world. Let me say that again. Christmas is God's annual stubborn reminder that he hasn't given up on the world because sometimes when, when you get outside of here, When you get away from the environment, being surrounded by Christians, it it can sometimes look like that maybe he has given up on the world. With the the rise of of secularism in the last couple of centuries, it seems to have gone unchecked. And secularism is like a a cultural framework that works against believing. It undermines faith. It undermines belief in the supernatural. Because of that, Western society is built now more around doubt than it is about belief. The theologian Peter Berger, I don't know if you've heard of him, said that Western culture is now set up to make you doubt. In the year 1500 AD, it was almost impossible to live in the Western world and not believe in God. Now, it's almost impossible to live in the Western world and not to doubt. But the upshot of this is that when people don't find their hope in God, they transfer that need for hope onto something else, onto, say, politics or or um, even nationalism, or success, or education, or things like conservation. That's where they get their hope from. To follow on from this, hopelessness is almost to be unexpected when those things that they put their hope in crash and let them down. But secularism is starting to fray around the edges. It's starting to show signs of breaking down. The pillars are being eroded. The general critique of the secular society is that there is a lack of meaning people are actually trying to convince themselves that there's meaning in their lives one selfie at a time but these cultural flashpoints that we're seeing could they be an indicator that things are about to turn could they be that can they, let's get excited about that that god is about to move that he's about to bring something new into this world that seemingly has forgotten him could it be that it looks like the tide has gone out, but actually a wave is building to come in. And maybe we can see something off in the distance, and maybe it's only the size of a man's hand, but that's revival, that's renewal, that's on the way. That's what we're looking for. What if that's the case? What if this state that our society is in is just merely a turning point, merely where the wave is going to come in? So this morning, I want to take a passage from the book of Luke that is generally associated with Christmas and and rightly so, but it underlines a principle that God uses to bring about renewal in the earth, where he renews his people, where he brings something new, where he brings something fervent back into the mix and fires us up, basically. It's about the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, and the visitation of the archangel Gabriel to his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're just gonna read three verses where the angel describes the life that John will lead because John was to be instrumental in the launching of Jesus into ministry in Judea. He would play a key role. He wasn't the main game, he was just the curtain raiser, but it was all part of the plan. So Luke 1 and verse 15, this is describing the life that John the Baptist will lead. Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. Are people prepared. Before God moves, there's always this time of preparation. And people like John the Baptist are key in that. John the Baptist's portfolio was to construct an environment that God could move in. So let's just have another, another look at another passage from 700 years before, which foretells what john the baptist was going to do isaiah 40 just another three verses let's read them verse 3 a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god every valley shall be lifted and every mountain and hill be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth Of the Lord has spoken did you see that to make straight in the desert a highway for our God again there's that idea of preparing something for God preparing a highway for God to move on John the Baptist was born for one thing to be a forerunner to Jesus a forerunner to the Messiah that was his ministry he had the ministry of the forerunner John was the last of the Old Testament prophets And the role of the prophetic was to make straight a way for God in the desert and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John was a forerunner. Forerunners appear throughout Scripture. The one who goes before, the one who who does something, prepares something before a big move of God. John the Baptist called attention to Jesus. Noah called attention to a climatic event, a flood. Moses preceded the Exodus, the beginning of Israel leaving Egypt. Joshua preceded the entry into the Promised Land. And Samuel, the prophet, preceded the kingdom of King David. There were times in the Bible and throughout history where God moved, but the groundwork, the beginnings, the preparation, was done by human beings. And this is the way that that God has chosen to work. He chooses to work through us, that we were always part of his plan, that we are his functionaries in the earth, and he chooses to move in conjunction with us so that we can be a partnership with him. He actually comes right out and he says it in the book of Amos, chapter three and verse seven. He says, "Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan first to the servants, to his servants, the prophet." God uses forerunners. What the forerunner does is to divert attention towards God, which sets up this prophetic undertow that picks up momentum and it just it moves things along. It moves people towards God. It just It makes them think. It changes their lens. They start to think differently about God and about his people. John the Baptist went out and he messed with the spiritual climate. He disrupted the normal order of things around Jerusalem. Suddenly, there's this change, and people start to come to hear John, to listen to what he's saying, and his message was repentance, and they would be baptised, and that would change their orientation and index their hearts towards God. That was his ministry. That is the ministry of the forerunner. But we see throughout the, the history of Israel this pattern of stagnation and then renewal. And then they go off the boil and it's stagnation and then renewal again. If you think about it, you'll recognise that that pattern built into different areas of life, this sequence of stagnation and renewal. It just isn't evident in religion or following God. It can also happen in politics. You see one party that's All of a sudden, they're the flavour of the month and they're elected and six years later, we hate them and we want to vote them out, you know. That's that's the way it works is they stagnate and then there has to be renewal. There has to be new blood injected and that comes in, in the form of an election. Also, in commerce, you see companies that rise and then they fall. And in entertainment, who's number one this week? But they're not next week or the week after that. And even in sport, you know, you'll you'll see once great teams languishing at the bottom of the, the, the table, the league table. For further detailed teaching on that, please talk to Pastor Tim or Hilsey. <laughs> <laughs> but then they rise to the top again, and I'm sure they will. And if you look at the at the revivals in history, you will see this forerunner pattern this pattern of stagnation and renewal. But before the renewal, you see something else, some sort of preparation that is done by humans to bring about this revival, God moving. And we want to see God move, right, don't we? Yep, I would have thought that I might have got 100% on that one. Yep, I'm seeing, yes, I see those hands. Come on. Yeah, bring it, ladies. Come on, that's good. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard about a, a revival that took place in Massachusetts in, a, in a, a city called Northampton happened in the 1700s and what happened there was that the whole thing started with and I quote a serious religious conversation among the young people that's what we want in there a serious religious conversation prior to that it was not uncommon for the youth of Northampton to be engaged in and I quote again revelry frolicking Profane and licentious conversation and lewd songs, not to mention tavern haunting. <laughs> what, what did they do? Contact their friends and say, Would you like to go out for a bit of licentious conversation? Yeah, you know, just anyway, that that I mean the things there, even though they're they're encased in this old language, are really the same things that are happening today. Are they? They really are. They're just said a different way. But something happened among the young adults. And this was a time of renewal where, where people came to God, where the city, by and large, turned to God, and it was ushered in by a serious religious conversation. It started out amongst a group of young adults. And you'll find that that is actually a pattern that God uses often, that many revivals start among young adults. Something starts to stir amongst them, and then it just it catches on, and that prophetic undertow that I spoke about takes over, and there's a push... And there's a push in a city towards God. I don't know if you've heard of the Hebridean revival that happened off the coast of Scotland. That was a, that was a doozy, folks. Two old ladies in their 80s, one 82, one 84, one completely blind, just started to get disgruntled with the fact that there were no young people in their church. So they decided to pray, and they started praying. And then they, they got a vision that God was gonna do something. And they suddenly saw a church full of young people, so they invited their minister to pray with them. And then he invited seven other people to pray, and they prayed in a barn. And then suddenly, everything just changed. Everything just changed. There were signs and wonders. People would would try to come into into, um, pubs and that, and they wouldn't be able to get in. They just suddenly can't get through this sort of cosmic force field that just appeared. And also buildings were were shaken, and there was lights appearing over the church. It was all sort of spooky, but it was the signs of renewal. And it was ushered in by two ladies in their 80s who did the spade work, did the groundwork. They were the forerunners. They were the ones who preempted this revival in the Hebrides. Let's come closer to home. Melbourne, 1902. Have you heard of this one? The Great Melbourne Revival of 1902. This is classic. At its zenith, there were a quarter of a million people attending meetings every week. And the population of Victoria was only one million in those days. The population of Melbourne, 500,000. So half of the city was coming out every night to go to religious gatherings held in the Royal Exhibition Hall. And they held four meetings every day. There's a story that isn't widely known, but at the opening of federal parliament, which actually happened in Melbourne in 1901, in the Royal Exhibition Hall as well, there was 1,200 people in attendance as the audience. But they held a prayer meeting later that week and there was almost double that turned up. And so the organizers had to change it from one night to two and then divide it up into men and women. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's what they did. So everyone says, wow, you know, that was good, but if you dig a bit deeper, you'll find that this revival was preempted 40 years before by a group of people who were also disgruntled with the state of their city, with the state of their state, and they decided to do something about it. There was a whole forerunner generation in this case. People started praying in 1859 for what happened in 1902. With the gold rush in Victoria, People came from all over the world. There was fortune hunters and Melbourne sort of came, became a receptacle for all these fortune hunters for all around the world. And what transpired was a city that was full of people who were motivated by money, sex and substance. Sort of sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the Christians in Melbourne didn't like it and so they started praying. Now the church leaders in Melbourne, they, they all got together prior to this revival and what they did was they just they got themselves organized and they visited every house every house in melbourne in the city of melbourne twice in the lead up to this revival and that's why it happened because all these people did the groundwork there was a whole forerunner generation so you can see what i'm saying you can see there's there's a forerunner there's something that preempts a move of god there's something that goes before there's something that But when you see revival coming like the size of a man's hand, it's tiny and it's off in the distance, there's work to be done to bring it in. Yeah? So I want to ask the question, how can we be a forerunner generation to our city? It's gone pretty quiet in the church just now. How can we repattern our lives to index the hearts of the people around us, our neighbours, our workmates, our schoolmates, people we go to uni with, How can we index their hearts towards God? I'm not saying that you have to grab them by the collar and make them accept Jesus and read them four spiritual laws and close the deal. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying to seed the atmosphere so that people's hearts are deflected towards God. Think about that for a minute. God thinks in terms of cities. He he does. He thinks in terms of geographical locations. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. God sent Jonah to the city of Nineveh because he was concerned about Nineveh. Cities have a vibe. Our city has a vibe. You know, it wasn't all that long ago that we had this sort of of thing over our city, this stigma over our city. They used to call it two-head city probably still do in some places that need renewal, but but our city has changed. The tone of our city has changed. Our city is changing and it will change a lot more. People are coming in from outside. There's there's all these residential areas that are filling up. And people from outside of Ipswich are saying, Who are you? We thought we knew who you are, but but you're not that. Now we're not sure. And there's people in our community who are saying to the church, we, we thought we knew who you were, but, but now we're not sure. We used to think you were like the moral police that, that, that sat on us and, and sort of got into us about our behaviour. But now you're, you're talking about love. And something has changed. There's, there's this shift. And what we actually get to do is to be the salt of the earth, to do that, to actually have a chance to sow love into this city and make it better. Because love will always make anything better. We actually get to look at God's original design and salt different areas of society that we live in. We can get so focused on telling people how badly they're behaved that they, we can actually reflect a God who's nasty rather than a God who loves, a God of, of goodness. And instead of arguments, people can come alongside of us and if they have a conviction of love, they can actually feel safe with us. People can come in amongst us and say, wait, I don't feel rejected by you guys anymore. And there's that that shift in the tone of the church. People can take off their masks here in front of us because we're we're not a police force. We're just an organization of people radiating God's love and concern for a city. There are voices out there telling people that God hates them and that he hates Australia because of immorality and that he's actually judging the country with natural disasters and that sort of thing. What a load of tripe, really, isn't it? They peddle the idea that God is a harsh punisher, punisher and a quick rebuker, whereas we know that he's a God of love who pursues us, who pursues people, pursues the lost, and he wants to get them in back in touch with his original design for their lives. Our mission is choosing Jesus and showing him in full to people. That's what forerunners are, to be forerunners in this city, slipping in and seeding conversations with the love of God. Imagine the effect that that has, not judging, not arguing, just turning the conversation towards God, not closing the deal, just planting the seed. Now, to be a forerunner, like John the Baptist, you don't have to actually wear clothes made of camel's hair and eat wild locusts and that, although it could be an interesting diet. Um, no, you don't. It's, it's just four things this morning. Now, to be a forerunner. Ready? First one, forerunners are living stones, 1 Peter 2.5 says you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ what is a spiritual house it's actually a temple some versions translate that word as a temple what was a temple in the bible the temple was the place where god met people on earth and it says that we are living stones We are like a stone from a temple, a smaller place where God can meet people on earth. In in 1978, I left school and I took my first job with the Commonwealth Bank. And to my surprise, about six weeks later, a school friend of mine also joined the bank. And and I, I said, What are you doing here? He said, What are you doing here? And and anyway, in that in that time from when we left school. To when he turned up at the bank he'd gotten saved he'd become a Christian and I didn't know him as that but he came into he went away for a while in my life and then he turned up and he was a Christian I only knew the old his old personality and anyway what he what happened to what happened was that he would come in and he would he would talk about what his church was doing and how much fun he was having and what his youth group was doing and how, how he was learning the bass guitar to play in church and, and all this sort of thing. And, and really, I was nowhere. I, was, I wasn't saved either. I didn't get saved for a few years until after that. But anyway, he came in and he began the process in me of actually me turning towards God. He started a conversation in my life that made me actually have to consider and reflect on the things of God and where to put it in my life because he was just there he wasn't hammering me that I needed to change my life or that I needed to stop doing this or that sort of thing he was just he was just there and he was reflecting God he was just a forerunner in my life he was a forerunner in the the period of time that actually moved me towards God and eventually yes I said yeah I'm going to follow you Forerunners prepare people spiritually to respond rightly to God in the middle of the dynamics occurring in their lives at the time. That's what, that's what forerunners do. This guy just put an alert in me to the things of God. He actually changed my lens just a fraction so I saw things differently. Can you do that with someone at work? Can you do that with someone at school? Just you don't have to hammer them, just have to maybe tell them how good youth was on Friday night or how good church was yesterday or how great your connect group is and how the lead is wonderful and all that sort of thing. Maybe it'll just be enough. Maybe it will just be enough. I actually I actually found that, that that when I was at I was working in the bank later on after I had become saved, that I actually I actually created this little sort of undertow by by telling jokes about my church. They were sort of slightly derogatory, but they were funny, you know. Um, they were, you know, they were Pentecostal jokes, and we told, I told all these people at church Pentecostal jokes, and they, they sort of, they would come away afterwards and say, tell me more. And a few of them actually came to church, came to youth, came to my, came to my, my group, my small group. Just by, I didn't, have, I didn't tell them, that they needed to repent, they needed to change. I just told them how good church was and it changed things. Forerunners are living stones. That's one. Second one is forerunners live an abiding life. You know, in the book of Matthew, Jesus disciples come up to him and say, "Look, we've been trying to cast this demon out, but we can't. We can't do it. We just we can't." And he says, "Look, guys, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. And so he goes and he casts the demons out, demon out like peeling a banana because Jesus had already done the preparation. He'd already done the prayer and fasting. He was living an abiding life. He didn't have to go away and pray and fast and come back and cast the demon out. He was already in that mode. He was already connected to God. The disciples ask him and they couldn't do it, but Jesus says, this is how it's done and then he goes to do it. The reason is because he lived a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, so he didn't have to call a prayer meeting, fast for seven days and then do it. He was already in that mode. When you live in constant connection to God, when you have that daily time with him, where you come before him and just connect with him, not to ask him for things necessarily, that can be part of it, but to just connect and be with God and just get to know him get to understand his voice, get to know it when he's speaking, get to get his thoughts. When you live in constant connection, the right thing to do and the right thing to say, it just kind of flows out of you. It's just, it's just like that. And it stands to reason that when you're connected to the source that good things are gonna flow through you. Jesus said, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Forerunners live an abiding life. The third one is forerunners pray without ceasing. We need to be praying all the time. When, when we, This is the pattern I see. We pray for something, maybe nothing happens. We pray again and we say, oh, well, nothing happens. And then, then we form theology around it. God doesn't do that anymore. God doesn't move like that. God isn't a supernatural God. God doesn't perform miracles. That's why Paul said to pray without ceasing. Pray until you get the result. Pray until you get the result. Jesus said that we would get breakthrough. He said, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. That's in John 16. Jesus said we would get breakthrough and that because of that, there'd be a source of joy. Our joy would be full. Breakthrough and fullness of joy go hand in hand. That's why we have to pray without ceasing. When I've, I've had people come up to me and say, would you pray for me? And I'll, I'll say, yeah, I i not pray for you. And, and they'll tell me what's wrong and I'll, I'll pray. And I'll say, I want to know when this thing is right, when this thing is finished. I said, so every time I see you, I'm going to pray for you. That's something we can do. That helps us. That's a little reminder, a little trigger to help us to pray without ceasing. When you see that person, oh yeah, right, okay, praying for you, doing that. So forerunners pray without ceasing. We need to saturate this city in our prayers. Yeah? We need to we need to lay that groundwork. We need to start that prophetic undertow. And we start by praying and and, and moving God. God wants to renew our city, but He just wants to do it the right way. And He wants us to get in there. So Don't focus on how long you pray or how fervently you pray, but over how long a period you pray. You pray for weeks if necessary, months if necessary, years and even decades if necessary. Don't recalibrate your theology downwards in order to justify the experience. Forerunners pray without ceasing. The last thing, forerunners are unhurried. Just a verse from Romans 8, verse 5 Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The Spirit desires that we slow down, that we connect, that we live a life that is not too fast and not too busy to hear God's voice. Busyness wars against our God-awareness. Jesus that I read about In scripture he was never in a hurry his life was full but not too full he had a lot to do but too much not too much to do and that's when we sort of tip over the edge from a kind of healthy busyness to a toxic kind of hurry hurry is when you have too much to do too little time and you have to speed up your mind and body and your relationships suffer and people in your life bear the brunt of it all in that mode of life when a challenge comes You've set yourself up to fail. When I look at Jesus in the gospel, he's always present to the moment. He's always focused on the moment. The best stories in the gospels are interruptions. Love, joy, peace, they're all incompatible with a life of hurry. If the musicians could join me on the platform. The Japanese theologian, Kosuke Koyama, just say that, Kosuki Koyama. Go on, get your linguistics right. He wrote a book called God at Three Miles Per Hour. Or if you're a child of the metric system, God at 4.8 kilometers per hour. You know why? You know why he picked that particular speed? Because that is the pace of walking, of walking with God. Not running, not rushing around, not scurrying around all over the place. It's a walk with God. It's unhurried. It's a time to take time, slow down, just breathe in, breathe in. Because that's how we get to be a forerunner. We need to, we need to be tuned in to what's got, what God is doing, to his thoughts, his patterns, the next thing that he wants to do. And so we can see in the distance... That thing, that move of God that's coming, that revival that's the size of a man's hand, but it's going to get bigger. And we can be forerunners. We can do the the spade work necessary to bring in what God has for us. So we come to the end of another year, and I just want to ask you to consider doing two things. To incorporate a few moments in your daily prayer to ask God to, to move in the city, and that's if you don't already. Pastor John urged us to do this back in February on Vision Sunday, but it can be something that we easily neglect as, as life closes in. So just a few moments every day, or maybe you devote your whole prayer time one day a week to God moving in the city. God, move in our city, move in our city. We want to see, we want to see revival. We want to see renewal come to, our, to old Ipswich town. That's the first thing. The second thing is do one thing this week and maybe every week to remind someone in the city that we're here. It might be a conversation. It might be a social media post about what you're doing at church or what's happening or something that's happening in your connect group. It might be just something that's happening at youth. It might be a whole bunch of of youths running around playing with basketballs in the Woodlinks gym or something like that. It might be something like that. But just maybe post something, maybe have a conversation to remind people in the city why we're here. We're here to prepare the way for God. We're here to give to God a people thoroughly prepared. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, this morning we just thank you because you love our city and that you choose to use us as your functionaries. You choose to use us in partnership, Lord God. Father, I pray that that many of us here today can take on the role of a forerunner in, in someone's life. Lord, just indexing their hearts towards you, preparing them to rightly respond. Lord, can we just, in this time, in this next, next year, in this brand new year, Lord, can you show us how to bring your love to this amazing city? Lord God, we, we see it as a privilege. Lord, as this year draws to a close and we reflect on what might seem to be a series of random events, but we recognize for the whole of 2019, you have actually been doing a new thing. And as we start to look towards a new year, Lord God, we look towards the the next thing that you'll do. Father, we just want to be forerunners and point towards that thing. Lord, remind us that you haven't given up on the world and that you choose to use us to change it with you. In Jesus' name we say, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast.